Hello and welcome to another episode of the Marvin's World podcast, a podcast where we speak to absolutely amazing and fascinating individuals, people who inspire creators like you and me to chase what we love and turn it into a full-time income. If you like the episode, you see great value in it, share it with your friends, spread the love and obviously give us a five-star review on iTunes or Amazon. Uh, today we have an absolutely awesome guest. His name is Ross Taylor. He is a man who traveled from Missouri to New York and now to the illustrious and fabulous Second City. He is an amazing man and he is today going to tell us about the world of improv. Hello Ross. Hello Marvin. Excellent intro. Very well done. <laughs> Felt casual and authentic. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to have you here, man. And like, yeah, just how you've been keeping, what you've been doing. I am currently teaching online improv for Second City in Chicago and Magnet Theater in New York. Uh, because of the virtual option, I can teach for multiple cities, which is very cool. Uh, I also do an independent teaching uh, online class, a drop-in class every Saturday at RossTaylorTeaching.com. So that's been the main source of income since all the stages are currently shut down. Uh, I look forward very much to getting back to performing on stages, though. Miss it. Yeah, I miss the, the, th I miss the liveness of it, the, the, the unpredictability of being there with audiences and just you don't know what they're going to say half the time. Well, that audience component is part of it. I've done a lot of Zoom improv shows and I'm confident in my abilities and that it would have read well in front of an audience, but like that feedback and their response is so critical that it just doesn't satisfy to read their chat. Like I miss the sound that the audiences make or uh, when they're bored or any of it. It's all, uh, I miss that part, being in the room together. Yeah, it's, but it will come back. I'd say people are saying at the next start of next year, things will get back to normal because we've got the vaccine. So at least we're getting sort of getting back to normal. Yeah, it's looking that way. Like it'll, theater will come back. I don't know how many, you know, how many will absolutely survive to the end that currently exists, but theater it, itself will exist. People love shows and live music and that ain't going away. But uh, certainly a lot of theaters have had a hard time surviving. Oh, but I mean, when everything gets back to, back to it, everyone's going to be all over it like flies van yeah. shit. So I should have said that. Makes me wish I had a bunch of money so that I could be a producer whenever it all reopens because there's going to be a lot of money to be made. Like, tell us about your journey, Ross. Like, how did you become the improv man you are today? <laughs> all right. Well, I'll go back to the very beginning. Uh, I'm from a very small rural community in Missouri. Uh, is our, my town's size was 4,000, so very small and extremely conservative and very rural and uh, very religious area. Uh, my mom had me whenever she was uh, 16, so I was mostly raised by her parents, my grandparents. Uh, it's a community that was very, like, not into the performing arts outside of a religious context. Like, in the church, lots of music, lots of performing, but in the school, eh, it, was, it was not looked upon as anything interesting, uh, as m at most a mild entertainment and at worst like <laughs> a terrible thing to do. Like other boys thought drama was the stupidest thing in the world, uh, but I just loved it very much uh, from a very young age. And I moved to a larger city in Missouri for high school. So my graduating class went from like 60 
to like 800. So it was a huge school and uh, it had a very strong performing arts sort of thing going on. They had a real theater and like <laughs> a lot of different classes and stuff. So there I felt a lot of really positive feedback from the teachers that what I was doing was good. So I just kind of got it in my head that I was going to pursue acting as a career, not knowing what that means or anything. I was just like, I'm going to be an actor. Uh, so I went to the largest university in my state because I was paying it off myself. And so out of state wasn't an option. And I was really into the things that I was into in school. But outside of that, bad student. Like if I didn't care, I just didn't try. So my grades were not great. So uh, I went to University of Missouri, studied theater, got to perform as much as I wanted. But again, just not a great student because there was I didn't really feel anybody to answer to. So <laughs> uh, I was saved up a bunch of money and moved to New York with a person that I was dating uh, whenever I was 25, currently 36. So moved to New York when I was 25 uh, with the intention of being a theater actor, but like not knowing what that process was, just zero knowledge or information, no family members or friends who are in the business. So there's just learning everything from immersion. Uh, so I'll pause it there. Any questions from you? That's a lot of information. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, you were, so you're like Idris Alba in a way. But, <laughs> what's, what's his background? Well, I mean, he came from a rough, rough sort of area in London, Hackney. Oh, and he okay. got into, there's, I mean, there's so many stories of people who haven't gotten to act, who didn't have people in the acting business, but have made something out of it. And you sort of done that as well in a way because you you're uh, you work in improv, which is yeah. I find improv's interesting in a way. Wasn't it supposed to be some sort of practice exercise before people did acting, and then it turned up being a yeah. main thing? Yeah, it was uh, originally. I want to say that there was improv involved in the teaching of um, who was it Meisner, I believe that in some of those back and forth exercises, there is improvisation where you're responding to what your partner's doing. And so you're making up the lines as you go along. Uh, but in the late fifties, it was a way to develop sketch originally at second city, they would improvise, but mainly as a way to write it down and make it into a show that you could consistently get last from night after night. Later, it got taken seriously in the 80s as long form, where um, if you've heard of IO or Del Close or long form improv, uh, later on UCB in New York is a theater that's like a descendant of that. That's when it started to be taken seriously in a sense of like, we could charge people $5 and feel good that this is worthy entertainment on its own, that it doesn't need to be perfected, that watching it being created in the moment is like, a certain kind of experience is worthwhile as well. And uh, I certainly believe that. I think that at its best, it's as good an experience as good music or ballet or whatever. Um, it's just unpredictable. You can't guarantee it night after night. So like, I can certainly see how you can't raise the ticket prices too much. How you probably couldn't pay every improv actor any kind of wage. It's, it's a very weird for a business model. <laughs> But how did you just like switch from acting to improv? When did you realize, right, I'm bored of lines. I want to be improvised. No, I'm just, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was, I follow where the opportunity is. If I can get on stage doing improv and I keep trying to audition for theater, but I'm not getting the opportunities there, I just go to where there's opportunity and stage time. And I still love theater. I would love to perform. I just recognize now that as a full-time profession, 
It's just, there's only a handful of people who get to do that. It's definitely possible to have it as a part-time profession in combination with other gigs. <laughs> but as far as like, I'm only doing theater, that's a privileged position that, you know, a handful of people get to be in. Uh, it helps if you're a celebrity. <laughs> oh, yeah. On Broadway, <laughs> past like 10 years, there was a big wave of just like big name actors taking a lot of the roles. And it's very easy for a Matthew Broderick or a Daniel Radcliffe to jump in because they're already famous. So they know that those tickets are going to sell. Yeah. How does um, the stage acting differ to being like a Hollywood actor? So if I wanted to be oh, yeah. an actor in, I don't know, Charlie in the Chocolate Factory in New York, <laughs> and I wanted to be um, Miguel in Cobra Kai, how would the <laughs> acting dif differ? Amazing. Uh, the live <laughs> performance is projecting an energy to a big room uh, and being comfortable as yourself, being confident as yourself in a big way. Uh, screen acting is about being truthful, but in a small way, because that same big energy is, I'm always getting the note of like, bring it down, bring it down. It's too big. <laughs> if you're on camera, you just deliver more subtle and realistic and be more like yourself as opposed to large. Uh, and you can really see this difference on the hosts of Saturday Night Live who are screen actors only, and those who have a little bit of both, like Tom Hanks is a good host on that show because as a live actor, he's solid. <laughs> but there are some who get clearly terrified, like a Scarlett Johansson or somebody who's like excellent on film, can really do their thing. But, in, you know, in front of a large group of people, they just haven't practiced that yet. So everybody gets nervous in front of a large group of people until you've done it a million times. And to me, that's the difference is just being comfortable in front of a group right here, right now versus being truthful in a room in an equally weird scenario like a bunch of crew crowded around and you're supposed to be in this deep emotional state but it's just totally false it's a different skills getting at the same type of thing of storytelling honest communication that kind of thing yeah i mean I, I, with everything you said there and i think you know comedians share it as well we just want to entertain people and we like performing in front of people. That's, that's, that's our job. It's pure. I mean, there's something about, I, I can know where I stand just by getting up on stage tonight and seeing if I still have it. <laughs> I can tell when they respond that it's like, I, I still have my skills. Here I am. It's validating in that way to just like practice your craft and have it still be there. And I don't know, to interact in a way that's playful and not needy you know, uh, that we kind of meet in the middle of me and the audience as opposed to like, please like me. Here's please. I'm desperate for your approval. Uh, that kind of thing. I miss it. it. God, I miss the houses, houses of people. That's one thing that I'm a, yeah. I mean, I find that quite interesting. Sometimes when I've tried to impress someone or I'm really sort of affected by them, I try and be nice or like, please like me sort of thing that has the, often the reverse effect and you do something silly but when you're in the sort of mindset where you're just like they're just people i don't care and like you just you know you like me or you don't then that often goes much better but it's hard to get your mindset to be like that the more we can get like the second option i think the better for all of us as performers oh yeah well it takes a while to settle into your own skin and feel authentic i mean you can't i just don't think i think it'd be extremely unusual for someone to have that present at the on day one or whatever, which is why whenever you see like Eddie Murphy at 19 on SNL being so great and confident, it's like, that's a freak. That's not typical. Like 
usually there's a growing period where you're figuring out and then you get confident. <laughs> uh, it's rare to see it in a younger person or a newer performer. It's like over time you learn that. Uh, but our instinct is always to please. Like we, of course, we want to be liked and we want to be good and show how funny we are, show how clever we are. Like that instinct from uh, level one improv classes, everybody wants to be funny. And it's always like saying, just like in real life, just let it emerge. <laughs> the more you try, the harder it gets for some reason. But if it just, if you just be yourself, it will come out your sense of humor. Yeah. Rather than try just, so what, what would you say is the balance in not trying to force things? but also putting the work in to make it good? I'd say it's like eventually uh, going with whatever your instinct is so that your tastes are met. And then assuming that your tastes will be shared by a lot of members of the audience. Not everybody, but that generally speaking, if I think it's funny what I'm doing, most of the time the rest of the crowd will too. Now that's not always true, but if you just trust that, <laughs> over time you find that balance where I'm not, I'm listening to the audience, but I don't panic if they're not responding and I don't, you know, I just continue to do what I want to do as the artist, knowing that I've trained enough that I'm not being obscure or too over their heads. Like I, I want to please the people and have them understand what's going on so that they can laugh. So um, it's like, if I just listen to my instinct, I will have a good show 75% of the time. <laughs> Just keep keep going out and keep doing what you're doing. It's funny what you said there, because it's a bit like um, there's something I'm interviewing someone uh, on NLP in the podcast because I find like NLP and hypnosis fascinating things, and Ooh, I think yeah. if you use them right, they're great for you. And NLP says the more options you give yourself, the more likely you are of getting towards a goal there. So like, I think if you are a performing artist, no matter what field it is, you should perhaps be open to other things because what you think you want to do might not be always what you end up doing or what you want to do in the end. Oh yeah, you gotta be flexible. Like, I mean, I think part of the tumultuousness of my early life gave me a feeling of resilience and just, you know, I have to be flexible. The world will not be flexible for me. So in the performing arts field, that's been super helpful uh, as far as like, I want this goal, but this opportunity is over here and it's not really in that direction, but I just, I'm going to move with where things seem to go. And that's how I end up at, you know, this point, there's nobody where I grew up who was a, a theater teacher, let alone an improv teacher. But now I'm an improv teacher who's like, it's just following where things have led, being open to it. Because if you close yourself off and you're like, well, I came to do theater, New York City. I'm not going to do improv. And I insist that, that you know, it's like, you got to go where the opportunities are. Uh, so certainly with audiences, you have to be that flexible too, because they won't like you every night. And that's okay. You know, every audience there, uh, if they choose not to have a good time, then I can't be like, hey, damn it, I'm good, like me, you know, like flexibility is very important with all of it. So one thing I do want to ask about improv as a whole yes. when you're performing, because I read a little article about improv in Chicago and they got, so there's three main places, right? There's the IO, the second city, and then as I did a bit of research, there's called the, um, what the, uh, let me have a look i wrote it down in a note the the resonance or something they say that we've it's called, said, uh, the possibly the annoyance yes that's the one yeah 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 
and they say that with Second City, it helps with your creativity and your sketch writing, whilst Improv IO helps with your teamwork, and the other one helps with your edginess. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's uh, that's generally pretty pretty right on. I would say having performed at the three places and having gotten to take in some of the classes and teach some at Second City, I haven't taken any classes there, but I've seen their curriculum. I would say that the big differences are like Second City is about producing a writer performer, someone who not only can do improv, but can take that material and use improv to create sketch material. Uh, so it's like their thing would be ultimately creating head writers. So creating these people who can perform, who can come up with ideas, who can re uh, lead a writer's room, that kind of thing. So it's like multi-skilled. IO is more improv only, improv as its own art form, and definitely play closer to self, truthful, honesty. I think originally that was some of it. Watching shows there, it wasn't, I, I didn't see that in every show, but I know that philosophically that's where they're coming from. And then the annoyance is what's your deal? So. Yes, and can sometimes lead performers to like care about their partners a whole lot and be good teammates and be really focused on the other person's experience. Whereas the annoyance is just, just focus on your experience. So make a choice for yourself as a character and see where that goes. And if your teammate does the same thing, then your scene will be just fine. You don't have to worry about where it's going. It's just about like spinning a top and seeing where it goes. So the annoyance is, in my opinion, more liberating for the performer because it's just take care of yourself focus on your experience, having fun in the scene. Um, so I found it because I went through New York, moved to Chicago, performed with Second City, then took annoyance classes. For me, it kind of felt like a freedom liberation sort of thing where it was like, oh, I don't have to care so much about take, making sure the scene's good, making sure everything's okay. And it kind of puts you in a position of caretaker. The annoyance helped me just be like, just worry about your own thing. You know, <laughs> don't get frustrated with others. Don't, you know, just focus on your own thing. So one of the things that I'm going to find interesting in the rest of the podcast is I, is I want to compare some of the concepts involved in improv and stand-up. And so yeah. what, what I want to have a look at is what, would, what are the main rules in improv? Of course, the basic rules for someone that is, my name is Bob and I've never yeah. done improv before. Awesome. So uh, Bob, I'll just assume that you've seen movies or a, a play before. You know, you know what a scene is. Two, two characters are in a scene and then there's another one with two different characters or whatever. So improv is creating these scenes, but instead of writing the script ahead of time, we're just making it up. So we're two actors on the stage, just playing pretend, going back and forth. Uh, the rule is that uh, you may have heard a phrase called yes and, maybe this is the first time. So to me, the yes means if I say something in a scene, it's true. And you can't deny that that is a reality. So if I say we went to Burger King yesterday, the only wrong answer from you would be, no, we didn't. There is no Burger King. If I said that we did, then we did. It's true. That place exists and we went there. Doesn't mean that you have to say literally yes. Like if I'm like, hey, let's go there right now. You don't have to say, oh, yes, and yes, I will. It just means that the Burger King exists. You can be like, no, I'm full. You can say no, but the yes just means accept what is said as true. And the and means keep adding information. So if I say we're going to Burger King, then you, it'd be pretty useless for you to go, yeah, we're going to Burger King because there's no new information. So those are the two things. What I say is true, what you say is true. Keep adding information. Outside of that, you're just spitballing, saying what comes to mind, responding as you might respond in a given scenario. And that's what an improv scene is. 
So to get you started, it'd be something simple like, all right, you and your partner at a backyard barbecue, just two neighbors talking. So okay. that's kind of the basics of improv is uh, don't deny the reality. Keep adding information outside of that. You know, those are the hard and fast rules. Okay. And, and, and other than that, it's more, it's based on the school you're in and there's, there's slight variations that a bit like karate in a way. Yeah. Any of the art forms. It's like, there's a lot of different ways to play piano, a lot of different styles of music. It just depends on what you're interested in at that point, but it's all music. And to me, any, any school, like I always, having taken classes at UCB in New York, one gripe that I had was that they definitely are a place where it's our way or the highway. Like this is the correct way of doing improv and all the other schools are wrong or, you know, like it lacks what's good because um, their thing is called the game of the scene. And if a scene doesn't have the game, you know, agreed upon and played by the players in that thing, then it's not a good scene and we didn't do it right. So it's like, I, I'm a big fan of, there are many different roads and schools and it's all positive. Like I'm, I don't like snooty attitudes. There's a similar attitude from legitimate theater towards the musical theater. <laughs> like, a symphony pop music like any of that stuff is just kind of taste you know it's a, a lot of good ways to different improv okay and well one thing i often hear is like long form and short form improv and from what i hear of long form improv it's just you get very small ideas and then you do a whole hour on it whilst a short form you play a series of different games based on suggestions in an hour yeah, that's right. I mean, the main difference from my perspective is the audience. The short form, you interact with them a lot, that you're constantly asking for suggestions and that that leads them to have a better time. So even though as an actor, I might prefer long form because, ooh, we created stuff and then we built it up and then we heightened it and we really tied things together, like to an audience, they want to interact more. I, I know that short form is valuable for that. So to me, it's just like, I don't look down on short form at all. It's just a different approach and it's very satisfying to the audience. So, you know, they just like, they want to have a good time. <laughs> and and uh, anybody, I've just heard a lot in New York more so than Chicago of like a snooty attitude of long form towards short form or regular improv towards musical improv. It's again, just like looking down on this other thing. And uh, it's, it's all pretty exciting. Now you've bought something that's very similar in standup. No, that's because that's that's the thing as well. Have you done a bit of stand as well, or do you mix in the circles that much? I've been I, uh, in Chicago, not so much, but in New York, I used to do a, a duo, a sketch duo, where we would perform at a lot of stand-up shows. So, like, I'm familiar with a lot of them from being there as a character actor, <laughs> but like, I'm not as a stand-up. Because oh, open mics were always the most dismal kind of like feeling. It seemed like everybody hated them and it was a bad experience. So I just never even wanted to try. I don't know what your experience is. Yeah, it's a funny thing in New York for having gigged there. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, you're f a lot of, it is the mecca of stand-up comedy. Like You get all the best comedians from across the world and in the United States, they're going there. And all they, it's very cutthroat in a way. And it's a bit like a Hollywood um like outside the interview room for Cobra yeah. Kai sort of scene there, a gladiatorial. And yeah, no one really wants to be there. They're all very self-centered on their thing. And yes, it, in stand-up, they tend to look down on acts that are a bit weirder. You know, if, if you're a comedian, there's magic 
or if you're a comedian that sort of does most of your work on stage rather than make it a pure writing punchline joke that happens a lot in stand-up comedy and yeah i'm on your mindset of yeah <laughs> if it works it works and it's good to see different things because if it's all the same it makes it boring oh yeah and the audience will eventually get tired of it like they're fickle they don't know what they want like the audience just comes in and wants to be excited and surprised usually um and if they're given that then they're happy but like from our end it's just like why wouldn't you want to have variety i don't know like if i'm resistant to uh, i remember i had a job working for comedy central when i lived in new york where uh, they were building their app for all these stand-up uh, routines that were being cut up into seven minute little chunks and my job was to watch each seven minute chunk and like write the tags and write a little title and all these things for this app and I was watching all these stand-ups tons of stand-up and watching Bo Burnham who's now a great director of film <laughs> he initially started as the piano stand-up guy as a young guy had these audiences who really loved his stuff but watching it I was like this sucks this is so hacky like anybody can write a kind of half funny piano song he's just getting you know, like all this snooty attitude it's like now as a seasoned performer i would want to bring a little music to the show i would want to bring a little silent you know like try to get laughs in many different ways as opposed to only one like i don't know there's just there's any reason for being defensive is always now strange to me whereas i used to be that way but now i'm like why are we why are we scared or resistant of this thing? What about it causes that reaction? <laughs> it should be positive. It should be good. Yeah. It's, it is a bit of an issue in entertainment. I think people who are in charge of like certain clubs or in certain places, they want things to be a certain way. Yeah, definitely. Well, they have their taste and that their taste is going to like set the tone for the place. That's uh, very common for business owners of many a different field too. <laughs> like, those ones who are just like, this is, everything's got to have my thumbprint. It's got to be how I see things and, you know, my vision. And, you know, if, if you have a vision that speaks to a lot of people, there have been those tastemakers who run successful, like Lauren Michaels, clearly, uh, of Saturday Night Live as a producer who is a certain kind of visionary, hard to work with, take it, you know, my way, the highway kind of person. But clearly the masses agree with his choices of talent, the way that that show has guided over the years, like, you know. He gets away with it because he's got good taste, I guess. <laughs> it's, but I think suppose if, if you are a bit different and you succeed, the rewards are much more than if you're just like everyone else and you'd be successful because yeah, you're definitely much bigger, isn't it? If you're just like everyone else. Well, second city, I got to say one thing that's really positive about their philosophy is what's your voice. What's your point of view? You, the individual actor, like what makes you different from all the other people who are here? Now that can be kind of intimidating because then you're comparing kind of your experience in your life to other people and inevitably there's going to be someone whose life experience is more dramatic or more difficult or more whatever, more authentic or more real. It's like you can't compete in that way. But by looking into your own life and trying to use that in your work, been very valuable for me. The most that anybody's related to my work has been since the shift towards opening up about my own experience or sharing those details. Because in my 20s living in New York, I didn't want to talk about where I was from. And I didn't want to talk about my experience because I just wanted to be an actor like everybody else. And just I just want to fit in, <laughs> you know, sort of uh, eager to please sort of uh, person. But ultimately, more people come to you with their positive response whenever they're like, I relate to that. Oh, that thing you shared. I, I went through something similar. Uh, you know, being relatable and vulnerable. It's like uh, ultimately 
a lot of the acts, like Maria Bamford is a stand-up who, her vulnerability is the thing that's probably working really well for her. Same with Mark Maron. I mean, like, whenever he talks about his personal stuff, people relate to that. Whenever he gets responses via email, it's just, you know, people respond to sharing. It seems to be true. One thing I've found quite funny, like some of the most popular stand-ups like um, Bill Burr and Patrice mm -hmm. O'Neill. I mean, it's a shame mm -hmm. Patrice yeah. is gone because he was amazing. And yeah. a lot of the many good ones, they say they don't really write on stage. They don't really write. And I think in some cases, for myself, I've, when people ask me to do a joke or to write things and beforehand and spend hours doing this, mm -hmm. I don't know. I just can't do it. It's just bloody, it's so boring and uncomfortable but when i'm on stage trying to work and something i'm being honest and not trying to be funny the comedy comes yeah and i've, I've uh, found that to be true of sketch writing too where um second city they have this way uh, they have a main stage show that performs every night uh you know except for monday nights so th over 300 shows a year so they get to workshop their material every night for a full house. And so the way that their, their sketches become perfect is over the course of like 20 performances where they slowly change this line until it's right, change this line until it's right, change this character until it's just right, like working it out. Because starting ahead of time, typing alone in my room, I don't come in with the perfect sketch that gets pure laughter from the audience. Like I have to find what actually works have to hear what they actually respond to instead of what I think they're going to respond to. It's like, yeah. And how, how, how do Second City sort of maintain the degree of freedom where it's not just sort of boom, 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 you do this there, you do this there. Where's the spontaneity, which makes it fun? That yeah, it I mad. mean, there's a bit of a sacrifice once we get to the final product of a two-hour show where it gets laughs 85% of the show night after night. At that point, that's working, and it'll probably work for 10 more months. So there is a sacrifice of each night you get to make up a whole show, or each night you're working with brand new material. At a certain point, it kind of settles in. And at that point, it's much harder for the actors, because suddenly, instead of being in this creative space, they're in this repertoire space. <laughs> and they're like, just doing the same show, like a theater, you know, just doing the same show night after night with little pieces of improv. So in the middle of every two-hour show, there's going to be two pieces which are improvised or crowd interactive, something where there's something happening in the audience that isn't planned every night, but structured, uh, structured improv, we call it. Uh, so there's those moments and that's what every actor looks forward to in those shows. <laughs> now down the tiers though, there's plenty of shows where we're not making money that, show, you know, we are performing a lot of new stuff all the time, new sketch material all the time. It's just that, those like legacy shows that draw the out of towners who pay $30 and then buy the drinks and the food and stuff like those just have to be good. You know, you can't ever have those be unsatisfying to someone from the Midwest. So they settle a lot of times on material that may not be the absolute best material they've created, but it works every time. <laughs> so it's like, it's kind of commerce versus artistic thing is always in balance. Because if they ever skew too much towards the artsy side, it tends to backfire, unfortunately. Uh, the audiences don't like material that's too confrontational or too uncomfortable for too long. They're willing to sit with a piece, but um, a whole show they wouldn't tolerate. Not that. In New York, comedy audiences are different, though. They're way into the edge and strangeness and performance art and that kind of thing. So 
you know, it just depends on where your theater is and uh, the audiences that are coming to the shows kind of guides the end product in a lot of ways. It's an unfortunate thing. You wish there was like a nationally sponsored theater where artists could kind of just do whatever and see what happens. Cause that probably would produce one in 10 genius works, <laughs> but you know, commerce, commerce, people want to, I, I understand. I would never want to run a theater cause it's hard to do. It seems like most of the money goes to the landlord. It seems like nobody owns their theaters. Ah, yeah. And, and, What's the what's the whole what two things that I'm really sort of interested in? How did you manage to get into Second City, and how 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 much work goes into preparing the show from like generate ideas, going on stage, testing it out, and then doing it live in a big show, and then you you you've taken it touring across the country, haven't you, with a few shows? Yeah. Uh, well, I'll start first with uh, how I got involved with Second City. I was living in New York and. Second City had this uh, cruise contracts with um, Norwegian Cruise Lines where they would send groups of five and a piano player onto a ship for four months at a time. And they had like 10 ships going at the time. So that's tons of jobs. So there was a little window of time where they cast out of Los Angeles and New York because they had so many of those jobs and similar kind of pressure to deliver a professional performance for cruise lines where you need a seasoned performer. You can't just load up with a bunch of green new people because you got family shows and you, you know, you need to deliver a certain like standard of performance. So I got into it in 2013 with a cruise ship. And then I did another one in 2014 and another one in 2015. And after the third one, it felt like uh, there's paid comedy jobs in Chicago there's main stage, ETC, touring companies, and, you know, it just seems like there's more stuff there. Because in New York, there's jobs in writing and television. And, you know, if you're one of those actors on Broadway, okay. But, like, otherwise, it's kind of hard to visualize where you're going to get paid for this other than just a hand of God reaching down and giving you this opportunity. So I just went – I moved to Chicago with the person that I'm with and – uh like start, I got opportunities pretty much right away. Like it, it was hard because I moved cities as an adult and <laughs> like making new friends in this world. It, I kind of was jumping the line a little bit. And so it was not easy for me in a social way, like kind of coming in and getting opportunities right away, which it would usually take you several years to get. But, you know, I navigated it as best I could. And so I'll talk about the process for one of the shows that we created for the Kennedy Center. Um, Second City had signed this multi-summer contract where each year they would create the new original show to run for eight weeks in the Kennedy Center in this upstairs theater that holds like 300. Um, so we wrote over the course of like a month or a month and a half, a week at the writer's room, like trying to type on our computers scripts that might work. And then two or three weeks of workshopping them, not in front of audiences, unfortunately. Second City only gets that luxury with those, men, you know, those two stages that they have where there's shows every night with the real audiences. Otherwise, a lot of rehearsal room and we're just taking our best guess at it. Um, there are a few like showings in front of important people and they kind of choose based on that. But it's mostly in the director's hands. It's very much like the director calls all the shots as far as what gets in or not. When we got to D.C., there were like four preview type shows where we it's really last minute like it's high pressure kind of this is out this is out we're going to workshop this today and change all the dialogue like until it feels okay 
because we have to run it every night. So you just can't leave until it's done. Like, you know, if you go out there with a, a show that's half good, it's just going to feel awful for eight weeks. So a lot of emphasis on making sure that we at least feel good about it, even if it's not the best we could possibly come up with. And at that point it's set. And uh, if an understudy were to come in because I'm sick one night, they're going to learn exactly that show we're doing. Like every last thing that I accidentally improvised that eventually becomes part of the show. Now they have to do like it was an intentional choice, which creates its own, you know, strange. <laughs> like for instance, Chris Farley, it was at second city in the nineties and that sketch that he had done where he's the motivational speaker who lives in a van down by the river that originated at second city. So he got hired to go to SNL and that, that sketch is at second city in Chicago. Somebody had to fill in for him as Matt Foley, the motivational speaker. And it's like, well, you know, Chris Farley kind of gets some great laughs out of that. I don't know if everybody can get that exact same response. It's like weird, the understudy stuff or the creation of these materials. It's like accidental and then very intentional. It's a unique place where um, in New York, when we were writing sketches, it was the other model. People in rooms, writing alone, bringing them in. I was constantly frustrated at just like, I'm wrong so much. How can I be wrong so often <laughs> in my room? I think this is funny, but here we are reading it out loud and it's just not getting any laughs or people seem bored or whatever. It's like very helpful to me now to get audience feedback on anything I write and to know that until we hear the audience's response, we just don't know how it's going or if it's any good, really. You can have a good guess, but that's why I guess TV must be so hard. Like, without having a live audience, you're just kind of recording a bunch of stuff that you think is gonna work okay and connect with people. And it's like getting that uh, response from the audience sure helps. Mm. And that's the thing with sort of Hollywood films as well, because you don't really, I mean, you can do as much survey research as you want, you can do yeah. different things, but you honestly don't really know how things are gonna go. And you have to take the chance, don't you? And it tends to be that that type of thinking chips away at whatever is original or good about so it's usually the case that one or a small group of people have a vision and they create a thing and that vision is kind of left alone. Like it tends to be that when you start to ask <laughs> producers for notes and things, it just all kind of gets carved away at and picked at. Uh, it's like the more that we could, I don't know if you're familiar with, there's a director called P.T. Anderson who did the Boogie Nights and the Master and There Will Be Blood and a bunch of movies. It's like the auteur visionary thing it's like it kind of works for the right person like i can totally see how just leave this person alone let them do their movie as they see fit because they clearly have a great mind for it like there's a lot of like dave chappelle it's like just give chappelle some money and just leave him alone and let him do whatever kind of show he wants like any any real bright mind it's uh it's a shame whenever the process of finance gets in the way of just pure comedic vision or pure artistic vision because it clearly is better when left alone, but I don't know. It's my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Things, I mean, yeah, it, it does have an effect. I mean, look at the Star Wars films, the ones after that. I mean, this may be controversial to some people that like them, but they are absolutely crap apart from like <laughs> the Rogue One or the Mandalorian. Yeah, I mean, I because I wasn't exposed to a ton of fantasy stuff, I came to all Star Wars material in, like, high school, basically. I, I was never saw it as a kid, but it's like, I know that the devotees <laughs> feel the same way you do. Where it's like, it was pure once. It was once great, but now it's been muddied and diluted. 
yeah, that's that's where it's come in. And I think the ones that have gone well, like the Mandalorian and Rogue One, the person had sort of free creative control. They didn't have to build it in a certain framework like they did with the follow-on films of the original trilogy. Yeah, yeah, it seems to be like obviously we're living in a world where a lot of the content on streaming is used it's not totally original it's like all right we're going to take this thing that exists and make it into a new property and make it into a new show it's like from the experiences we've seen so far with that the ones that get free reign are the ones that do the best like oh they took it in a cool direction that nobody expected as opposed to like they really adhered to what they <laughs> felt that they had to do within the framework of the whatever franchise it's like i would love to see a Batman that was totally strange and weird and surprising rather than just like, Oh, here's another DC comics movie that will hit all the checkpoints or whatever. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I like the dark Knight trilogy cause it's yeah. like, yeah, he, good. it was, yeah, it was very well made and he used a lot of, um, scenes, like a lot of, a lot of, um, what's it called? Lots of props and that. And mm. now we're maybe a bit too much green screen, aren't we? Yeah, that's that also loses some of the charm and like it can look as realistic as possible. But there's something really charming about like um, Terminator 2. Uh, it's an outdated technology movie, but it still kind of looks good because it's not. <laughs> there's something about people having to make a special effect come together. Car chase scenes are the same way where it's now anytime I see an older movie with a car chase, it's like, wow, look at that stunt like. That's an awesome, they had to shoot that. <laughs> Some kind of thing I really appreciate about, um, I don't know, whenever it comes to effects, lack of green screen, but it obviously is freeing too. I mean, you can do anything with it. You know, you could have like an Avatar movie where uh, everything's in this made up fantasy world and it can happen. Like, that's cool. I guess I like cartoons too much. I feel like cartoons cover that void of like, here's comedy that can go wherever it wants. Uh, I love cartoons. <laughs> I think that they've gotten uh, really good in the past few years. I don't know if you've seen Big Mouth uh, as one on Netflix, but excellent uh, coming of age kind of cartoon. Oh, emotionally based. Uh, but you know, you can get away with everything you want. I, that would be a terrible show if it was CGI or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny the way things are going. But I mean, there were, <laughs> yeah, the Lion King was ruined as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh it's like it works once and then they'll do it 10 more times because uh, i forget what the original one was where there was a bunch of hype about like oh they did a cartoon live uh, on a sunday night and it was a theatrical production and everybody loved it and then there were like 15 more uh it's a shame but but uh just to connect it to second city like they re just got purchased by uh, a, a fund an equity firm that's own uh, the, the owner of it is the ceo of take two entertainment which creates uh, a lot of the NBA 2K21, the Red Dead Redemption, and Grand Theft Auto series. So it's like a media person who uh, has purchased other media sort of ventures. So it's like, I don't know what the future of the company is going to be or why anybody who makes video games would be... I guess I could kind of imagine a scenario <laughs> in which that content or those writers are used or whatever, but it's like, who knows where this company is headed in the future. Uh, but it's, you know, obviously the world is evolving. <laughs> Money has to exist uh, as, as it is. Like there were a lot of theaters in the comedy world that are just, were bad at the finance part. Like UCB in New York was the biggest thing 
in town whenever I moved there in 2009, but now there is no more UCB theater in New York. Like it's only in LA right uh, at the moment. It can all happen very fast. Yeah, that's a funny thing with a lot of a lot of us creatives and artists. We're not always necessarily smart in terms of the, we're good at our job in performing, but in terms <laughs> of the other side of things that let us down. <laughs> well, it's hard to like have uh, an idea about at the, everybody gets into it as a beginner. You know, it, it would be hard to know in advance. It's like uh, performers of the 50s and 60s in rock and roll music who got exploited by producers and managers. It's like they wouldn't know better that they should get their own copyright stuff, that they should get their own publishing rights and all that stuff, that it could be exploited. It's like the Beatles eventually got on board and created their own publishing and all that. And that's when they became billionaires. It's like once you take control of your stuff, uh, clearly in Hollywood, like production companies, Brad Pitt starts to zone, DiCaprio starts, you know, like all these people know what to do with, at the, the point where they're uh, experienced. But at the beginning, it's like nobody knows. Uh, it would be better to, to create your own content and have control of it. That's one thing about Second City. Whenever you create those shows on the main stage that work so well, it's their property forever. You know, I mean, that sketch, it was kind of a taboo that the Chris Farley sketch appeared on SNL later because it's supposed to be property of Second City, but they kind of like gave permission or whatever. It's like, you know, if you stole the pilot, that pilot's now NBC Universal's forever. Like, it is kind of crappy that it can't be more beneficial to the artist. So, I mean, one thing I found interesting, what you mentioned there, Chris Farley, wasn't he a com someone that sort of crossed over into both worlds of stand-up and improv in a way? I don't know that he actually did stand up too much. He might very well have done some, but he he was definitely a sketch performer in Chicago and then got hired for SNL and did a few movies and, and he was past, you know, like it all happened really fast there from being at Second City in 1989 to him dying in 97, I think it was. It was just a very short little window, but yeah, he probably did do some. I wouldn't doubt it. I know that whenever the, the SNL performers are in the off season, and they're not working that they make a lot of money doing that kind of like going to colleges and doing uh, shows like that. Yeah. I mean, it's a shame he's gone because he was incredibly talented. The same like Robin Williams and his hero, John Belushi. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, those people all have that description. I never saw John Belushi live cause I wasn't born yet, but reading descriptions of the audience loved him whenever they came on the stage audience like just love this person same to be true of chris farley gilda radner they would talk about that same sort of thing where it's just like a special quality where an audience just kind of loves somebody you know they tend to like the energy and it just continues to work i don't know it's it's a special quality um rest robin williams seemed to need it you know he really uh need from the audience unfortunately it's like belushi and farley had this thing where the audience thinking that you're the ultimate party animal and buying you all the drugs you want is a really bad thing for you. <laughs> like they, they get into this lifestyle where they feel they have to live up to something like the, uh, my, my fans expect this behavior of me. So I'm going to behave this way. It's like Robin Williams, uh, unfortunately seemed to be sad and needing, I don't know. I can't speculate on their inner lives. <laughs> I mean, they say it though, isn't it? With, with performers and comedians, like some of us, like we're golfers and we don't we get on with life we don't worry but then there's others that are very troubled souls i mean i personally upon reflecting 
certainly felt that a lot of validation from the audience is filling in for validation that I didn't feel from my parents, for instance, so that if I can make 300 people laugh, there have been multiple times where I'm like, see, yeah, 300 people. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's uh, a misappropriation of energy and I've gone through therapy. So I, I don't like interpret it and only get my love from the audience. Now I can give myself love, but for a period of time, initially, like, a positive feedback from a group of people is love for an hour. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> fleeting and over and it's not the real thing, but I definitely was motivated from time to time with like, wow, they like me. Wow. I'm good at this. Or this, this is, this is my place. This is the place where I can get that feeling, you know, real life harder for me to get that feeling, but here easy. <laughs> how, how does the sort of structure of improv work as opposed to stand up? Because in, in the UK with stand-up, how it goes is you do open mics, you do well in competitions, you travel across the UK, you get an open spots, then you get bigger spots, then you get an agent, you get pushed up a bit, and then boom, you're on TV. <laughs> and then boom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as far as I know, like stand-up is a lot like that here in that once there's buzz around a performer, that performer then can shoot to the top pretty quickly. But if there's not buzz around them, then you can languish forever. Kind of like you can continue just doing shows and shows and shows and just never make it. So there's a certain aspect that's like out of your control in a sense. In the improv world, it's just there's not usually a ton of paying jobs at the end. Usually what happens is that your skills get so good that you can create a property that then you could sell or that gets you attention. But being on an improv team alone won't get you really anywhere except to the you know top of your theater like to be on the best team at the magnet pays zero dollars a year and it's not you know it's not going to get you anywhere career-wise if you're an actor but the skills that you develop being from an audience every night creating characters creating sketches like that stuff can eventually be beneficial to you so it's not like worthless but it's important that you don't just be like all right it's like being the best uh actor in your theater's college or in your college's theater department you know big fish in a small pond it's like oh i'm the best here but it, what does that mean it's like stand up there is a little bit more of them if you're able to develop 45 minutes of great material you'll probably get recognized at some point i mean i it, I, I don't see a ton of people just like not excel if they can if they're really creating great material but i also don't know stand up as well yeah who were, I mean, how, how did, um, one thing that I'm intrigued in, like, how did um, Bill Murray and, like, what's his face? The other, the other guy in Ghostbusters. Um, <laughs> Dan Aykroyd? Yeah, sort of make it to where they are now. And I hear about Jane Lynch as well. So how do they sort of progress to where they are now with input? Yeah, I mean, there's, like, it's annoying to hear that everyone's journey is different whenever it's being told to you like everybody's journey is different so don't expect it you know like but it's totally true that everybody's little path is very strange and unique um dan Aykroyd is canadian uh he came through toronto so second city was in chicago starting in 1959 and in the 70s it expanded to toronto the guy who's currently selling it his name's andrew alexander he had purchased it in 1974 in Toronto and later purchased the whole thing, Chicago as well, in the 80s. But in Toronto, they had this like great cast of um, Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, Gilda Radner, uh, Harold Ramis. There's a few others, like really big name comedy people considering the rest of their careers. But at that time, just up and coming 
theater performers. They were all in this, uh, uh, many of them in a production of Godspell in Toronto, which was apparently a huge hit in the 70s, uh, in the early 70s. And that got them attention and then led to Second City. Then in the 70s, uh, Lauren Michaels is putting together Saturday Night Live and recruits several of those people. So uh, Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Gilda Radner were all Second City Chicago people. Um, Bill Murray got added the next year because Chevy Chase left the show after one season. So like a lot of those were Chicago. Uh, Bill Murray's from around the Chicago area. His older brother, Brian Doyle Murray, was the first one in Second City. So like Bill came after that and kind of got to be friends with everybody because he was this person's little brother, has a lot of talent, eventually gets on SNL, you know, career leads from there. A lot of it just comes from those kind of like springboard moments. And if you're not <laughs> in Chicago or New York or whatever at those times, you're not getting access to that. It's very, who is talented at the time that this thing happens, whenever it's really beneficial, it's uh, very fluky. Can't control that aspect. Uh, Jane Lynch, I don't know as much about. I know she's... Uh, she was second sitting in the 80s at some point, but I don't know quite as much. I know that, you know, in the 90s when she was in Christopher Guest movies that I recognize, like Best in Show or like things like that, she's in her 40s or 30s. I mean, she didn't, she wasn't like a sensation in her 20s. She's someone who definitely worked up to her career uh, and, and now it's killing. Like she hosts a lot of game shows on networks. Like that's great money. Yeah. And she was good in Glee. <laughs> oh, she's awesome. She's, uh, again, likable. Like, there's nobody who's going to be like, she's not funny and I don't like her. <laughs> yeah. I, <clears throat> there's always a new sort of thing going on, isn't there? And, like, right now, a lot of comedians, like, the big thing to get you out there is social media. But yeah. now that everyone's sort of caught, caught on to TikTok and all these things now, I mean, how long is that going to last? There's going to be, with everyone trying to do it, there's going to be, there's going to be another thing, isn't there, after that? Like, what's sure. the next thing going to be for, like, improvisers and comedians to try and reach an apple cut? Yeah, I mean, TikTok isn't that different from YouTube videos or Funny or Die or any, you know, funny videos that are short, and that'll continue to exist because people like to laugh, especially being able to look at your phone for 30 seconds and just get like a laugh. <laughs> like that's going to stick around, whether it's TikTok or whatever. It's like, uh, you know, companies shift around as far as who has the power. Because like Funny or Die was a huge property in like 2008. And now it's not, you know, it still exists, but that's not the biggest voice in making comedy content anymore. Now it's Netflix because they're throwing a billion dollars at it or whatever. Like same with Amazon, all these studios now have a lot of creative abilities. I would say in the next five to 10 years, like they should create one to two to three, you know, great pieces of comedy if they're doing their thing. Of Second City's big on um, strength through abundance. If you create hundred sketches, 20 of them will be very good. So like Netflix, similar sort of thing, just make a million shows. Two of them are gonna be amazing. Like that's how you have to do it. You just can't, we're gonna invest a hundred million dollars in one show and it's definitely gonna be good. It's like, that's a bad way to try it. <laughs> Creative stuff, you just never know. And what, how has your journey been as a whole? Like how, what, what has your journey in improv given you? Uh, a true sense of confidence in myself. I mean, to feel legitimate in front of a classroom or in front of an audience. Uh, I certainly suffered from low self-esteem low feelings of self-worth for a long time and performing was a place where I felt confident 
And now in my personal life, I'm beginning to feel more confident in that self-worth and it kind of helped bridge it because it helped see where I had value. I could be like, oh, whenever I go to a classroom, I contribute, it's a positive thing. Whenever I'm on the stage, it's positive, you can see it. It's like that helped me a lot in my personal life to, to support me until I truly feel uh, worthy. So it's like improv helped me with that, helped me be a better listener. I try to listen to what people are actually communicating, uh, try to and, you know hear other people's needs, help validate them. Um, a lot of the improv is good for like teammate support, be a better collaborator, you know, help other people bring their ideas further as opposed to criticizing and chopping them down. Um, it just helped me be okay failing so many bad shows. Like you do a bad improv show, you wear the egg on your face for an hour. Who cares? There's just no, it doesn't matter at all. It really helped me get comfortable with having a bad performance in a given night or whatever, like um, let it roll off the back and have a short memory. Whereas in the earlier days, everybody seems to be hard on themselves and be like, God, why didn't I say the right thing? Why did I say such a stupid thing? Just beat yourself up. Like, the instinct to beat myself up has diminished somewhat. So that's nice. <laughs> okay. And it's, it's, it's a often thing that I hear in terms of like improv is more widely spoken of as like improving someone's confidence or social skills than perhaps stand up. And what do you think sort of makes it improv something that people suggest rather than stand up? Uh, Stand-up is a little more focused on the outcome. I mean, you just, if you don't get a laugh, it's a problem. <laughs> if you do a 10-minute set and there's zero laughs, like your goal was to tell jokes that at least got a little bit of love from the audience. But in improv, we can take some of that pressure off because it's being made up on the spot. The audience is going to give a certain amount of leeway and they're going to be forgiving in a certain sense because, oh, they just made it up. They just said that. Like there's a certain sense that we're not being graded quite as hard. And that can be helpful towards creativity of like, feel free to make a choice that might suck. Feel free to try out a character that might be too much. Like it's okay. Uh, whereas in stand up, you might try that out once, but if you keep going back to your choice again of being, <laughs> I don't know, edgy or outlandish, I don't know. I don't know how long a stand up, it would be up to a strong willed, strong stomach uh, stand up to continue to be edgy. Like Andy Kaufman, I gotta say, looking at, the stuff where he was wrestling the women in the eighties, like that guy kept doing that act over and over and has seemed so uncomfortable, like making a whole audience hate you. Like that's commitment. That's a level of commitment that I personally wouldn't have, but I respect and admire that that person did like to do something that the audience hates over and over, you know, it's a choice, uh, but that's extreme. Most standups want to please, you know, you want to get that laugh. So improv can help at least give like a classroom can be a, a playful space where you can make whatever mistake you want. I'm always trying to prepare them for the audience, trying to like guide them, but they'll learn that whenever they get in front of the audience. One thing I've also found interesting in courses in stand-up and improv is that improv has different levels. Like you have a level one, you have a level two, you level three, but stand-up is often just a straight course, how to improve yeah. your writing or how to be a great MC. <clears throat> I would say it's like stand-up you can get to performing much sooner, I think. You could probably take one class and by the end of it, be able to do five minutes of jokes in front of a small crowd. In improv, it's just, it's so complicated because you're making it up using your body as the instrument and your brain as the writing device. And at the beginning, there's simplified versions that we just try to make it easy. 
And then as you keep going, it's like we start to get at the more intermediate and advanced skills and it just takes time. You can't immediately talk about everything and give every note that you should at the beginning. It's just like, here, let's just do a scene. Let's see if we can just make sense. And then it's like, all right, now let's be emotional and try to have a dynamic between the two people. And later, let's use the environment and be physical, like just kind of piece by piece skills. There's just a ton of little skills to be worked on in improv where I stand up, it's like mainly material and then delivery. <laughs> you know, It's a little more simplified. You don't have to try to go anywhere with your emotional you know, stakes or heighten it quite in the same way. But again, I don't know as much about stand up. Yeah, it, it's a funny process because a lot of comics, they use a thing called the Pomodoro technique. Do you know that? No, I'm not familiar with it. So like for 20 minutes, they just write down every sort of, they, in 20 minutes, they write down all the ideas they have in that restricted time to try and be mm. more creative. Oh, yeah. Uh, they use a lot of sort of word maps when they got an idea. So if they, mm. and they use a lot of premises and then they, use a punchline at the end and there's different ways so there's a bit where you write down to warm each other up some comedians they free write two pages and then sometimes they will write down words and think mm. of like what this could mean to try and warm their brain up yeah. and then when they're trying to think of punchlines they will they'll write down their ideas and then they write down punchline setup, punchline setup, mm -hmm. and then they'll keep on writing ideas to see what the funniest bit is based on that. Yeah, yeah. They have this cool second city has a similar sort of, they have a couple like many exercises, but one of them is a sort of web based uh, brainstorming, what they call it, riffing, where a bunch of actors are doing that process as opposed to just one. So it's like, all right, we have a group of four people. Uh, you're going to start talking about politics. What does it make you think of? And explore different ideas, then return to politics, go in a different direction. And all with the goal of being trying to come up with some kind of premise that seems promising or some kind of behavior that seems interesting or like, you know, it's, it's very loose and messy, but uh, sounds like a similar kind of approach. Uh, I tend to just be listening through my everyday life and capture on my phone, on the notes or on pieces of paper, it used to be. Uh, anything that seems like something, <laughs> anything that makes me laugh, any kind of behavior that seems interesting, it's like try to capture it so that later, whenever I'm in front of the computer trying to write, I have those ideas. I find that sitting down with a blank brain is a little tricky. It's just like blank screen, no ideas, hard to write. But if I have on my phone a bunch of things over the past few weeks that I've been collecting, it tends to be a little bit easier. It's like, I'll find one little, thing it'll be like oh that sounds fun to write and I can kind of get at it um, there's a lot of different approaches to it though I've heard about like Stanley Kubrick had boxes of these things collecting research of images and things or Woody Allen has a, a shoe box with little ideas for something to put in the script in the future like a lot of artists seem to have that kind of writing thing where it's like how do you get new material? You can't usually just sit down and like turn on inspiration so to have strategies and techniques is the way to go and what would you say <clears throat> yeah i find it fascinating with the team aspect of improv because i mean stand-up's much more of a single based thing like mm -hmm. let's put it this way i think stand-up's a bit like being a boxer whilst improv's a bit like being an american football team i suppose 
Yeah, yeah, I definitely love to use the sports analogies. Uh, someone I'd uh, taken a class from compared to a basketball team or a soccer team just because of the smaller amount of people involved. Uh, but definitely different roles and the roles shift <laughs> from scene to scene. Like I'm not just playing goalie. Like at some point we're going to switch and I get to, you know, like there's a rotation involved. But uh, as far as who's taking the lead, who's driving this scene, who's supplying the information this time. Uh, but yeah, as far as like training and stuff, I definitely look at it that way where it's like train every athlete on the field to be able to execute these 10 tasks or whatever. So that whenever it's your turn, that you're well equipped to, to take it. Because what we don't want in improv is one star or one person who does everything. It's like we need everybody to share. That's a big part of it is uh, everybody get your percentage, everybody get your turn. It's like, because if you don't, it puts more load on everybody else and makes it harder. So it's all about like supporting the whole group by doing your share. And stand-up's just such a, yeah, solo activity. It's totally different in uh, training. I, I kind of like collaborating with others just because it gives me someone to connect with. Uh, it's one thing that always kept me from stand-up in the beginning was like, you mean I'll just be alone? <laughs> I like having the other person out there. It's helpful to feel, I don't know, com comfortable as opposed to just me in the audience. <laughs> but I'm yeah. also a person who at this point wants to explore those things that feel uncomfortable. So at some point I will try out a five minute stand up routine. <laughs> yeah. I think what, what's your thoughts on like, I was speaking to, do you know, Tom Billow? I, I'm not saying his name. name? Right. Yeah. 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 But he's, yeah, that's the one. He's a bit he's a bit like Tony Robbins and like Louis Howe and he does a motivational sort of podcast and he speaks to a lot of inspirational people who have made something of themselves. Mm. And he spoke to one guy who was uh, an inventor. Like he's invented he's like by 18 he was getting degrees in Harvard. Let me see if I can find him. Um but it was a really great episode and I, I yeah, it was. He, he says that a lot of inventions are made from people that are not necessarily inside, like the structured way of doing things. But they're from people that are on the outskirts, and they they explore different genres and they put them together to make something new. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm inspired by that stuff. I mean, like, I have commonly in the past ten years used my skills in ways that were not theater related, but I'm very excited to like apply my field specific expertise to something radically different because it's helpful in a small way like corporate corporate com uh, corporate improv type workshops um we're not really working on improv but we're not also working on the goals of like ibm we're in some kind of middle place where it's like i'm sharing from my world you're drawing from it what might be helpful for you in your world like those intersections are pretty cool um also, the different uses of improv, I got to say, at Second City, they could, at least when things were open, they could offer so many classes and get at least enough people to sign up that they were able to have this crazy, like, there's improv for people over 60, there's improv for Alzheimer's, there's improv for uh, anxiety and depression, like, in these wide range of kind of like, that's not about comedy. That's more in a, like, social behavioral area, but it's interesting, you know, it's like, all for it as opposed to just do i don't know i'm all for like what could be created out of this stuff there was i think in boston a theater which was trying to work with virtual reality and you know just like early stages of 
could we have audiences in their homes watching this live show that we're streaming from our theater in Boston? It's like anything that expands is very cool. And I'm so excited about, as opposed to, I don't know, a more strict, like, well, improv should only be this. Uh, in, uh, theater and film should only be this. It's like, uh, there should be creation and innovation. Yeah. I, and speaking on sort of innovation and all that, who are sort of improvisers in the US that really sort of impress you? Because in the UK, we got one called Ostentatious. They basically do improvised musicals on Jane Austen novels. Wow. And we got the Maydays who have been around for 15 years. And we got yeah, the Comedy Store Maydays. players who uh, they've been in a stable in the Comedy Store for ages. Yeah. I, and um, I had seen like five years ago, the Cambridge Footlights and they, I know they do sketch, but it's like, I love that there's comedy traditions elsewhere. It's like so valuable. I don't know. Um, so whenever I was, whenever I first got to New York, most of the people that were inspiring to me were just people at the Magnet Theater who were the best at that theater. So like, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were the greatest in the world, but at that time, because I was falling in love with it, it was just like, these are the best people. So in my mind, the first musical improv show that I saw that was an hour long, that was a narrative, it was like, I just, I have to do that. I know that I'm not good enough right today, but if I take classes, I know I have to do that. Um, first time in Chicago, I saw this group, TJ and Dave, just a duo. They do an hour long show. It, it was mind blowing just because I'd never seen two adults play so patiently and realistically, you know, improv in classes is so zany and silly and outrageous that like to see people approach it in a mature way, it was really, wow. Uh, and then there's a group that was called Improvised Shakespeare, uh, oh. which is equally, you know, their, their scenes are like 10 or 12 minutes. I mean, to see something just so committed to is like, wow, that's inspiring. Now they had some goofy ideas about not letting women perform because like in Shakespeare's day, it was, it's like, Oh, come <laughs> on. It's, it's 2020. We can have women in the improvised Shakespeare group, but like uh, seeing that level of, you know, it's like seeing a great performer of music or any other kind of art where you're just like, wow, it's something to strive for. And it's just about stealing and drawing from like the energies of like, I'm not Chris Farley, but I love how Chris Farley is physical in his energy. So in my own way, Next time I'm on stage, I want to be more physical, whatever that means to me, like drawing on the, the things that I like about other performers and bringing it to my own performance uh, has been very, very valuable. It's like students, that's another thing they're missing out on right now. Online classes are good for learning the nuts and bolts of improv, but you're not getting to go to a theater and watch experienced improvisers do their thing. It'd be like a young stand-up watching stand-ups. You know, it's like important to see others so that you can be like, oh, I'm learning from this. I'm learning from this thing that they do well, or I'm learning from this thing that they do poorly. Like, it's so valuable. The improv training right now is half of <laughs> correct improv training. It's like you need to be able to see the uh, audience's response to others, and you need to be in front of that audience and feel their response. Like, learning how the audience responds is integral, integral in performing. Hmm. And for, for anyone that's sort of looking to... Um get started during these times yeah what, what are your what what books do you suggest and what courses do you suggest going on all right so anybody would be interested in improv i'd say watch a show for free on twitch uh, uh the magnet theater has a channel 
and the Annoyance Theater has a channel and they both do improv shows and sketch shows. So just to see what it is, you can tune in to those uh, and those are free from your home. If you're interested in taking a class, uh, there are plenty of theaters offering options. Because I love Magnet Theater and I teach sometimes there, I would recommend the Magnet Theater first. Second City definitely has some classes. Currently, they're, they have kind of used their Toronto and Los Angeles and Chicago teaching hubs as one. So the only thing that I would, you know, make me lean towards the magnet is you'll know who's teaching the class. The picture will be there, their bio will be there. Second City, it's just given out, so you don't know in advance. So that's the only thing that might uh, make you feel more comfortable is knowing who your teacher is gonna be for those classes. If you're gonna read a book, uh, I would recommend Truth and Comedy by Del Close and Sharna Halpern. If you've never seen improv before, just because it's like from the basics. If you have done improv and you wanted to read a book, I would recommend uh, Improvise by Mick Napier. That's a good one for people that know a little bit about improv and are looking for things that are more geared towards the intermediate area. And if, if anyone sort of well, I'm going to ask if anyone wants to get a hold of you or if they want to say like, right, I need Ross Taylor. What do they do? <laughs> ah, excellent. Yeah. Cause I didn't plug my own thing. Uh, Ross Taylor teaching.com. That's my website. I offer one drop in class a week. Uh, it's very affordable. Two hours on Saturday afternoons. Uh, I guess in England, it would be the evenings. Um, and you can reach me via email there. Uh, my bio is there. If you wanted to reach out, feel free. Happy to talk to anybody. <laughs> We all need people to talk to at the moment. Yeah, in these, ti in these times, I'm starved for social attention. <laughs> you can go in Omega. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm going to have to let you go in about a few minutes just because I'm coming up on a time where I have a, another obligation. But yeah, uh, it's, no it's been really nice chatting with you though, Marvin. It's been a lot of fun. And the only thing that I want to... Okay, yeah, I'm going to... Just say, what is the biggest lesson you've learned in life? And we will. Oh man, biggest lesson in life. Mine specifically for me would be, if you keep at it, uh, you can improve your life. <laughs> but that's an easy thing to, for me to say to others as I would never be like, hey, if you just keep at it, you'll improve your life. Like life is hard, <laughs> but for me, and keeping the course following acting like uh, whenever i was 15 i decided to be an actor and that's the most ridiculous thing in the world for a 15 year old in the middle of missouri so i have followed my course and i can i will continue the course until the passion is gone it's like for me following the course has been uh i found that a bunch of people from my hometown who didn't find a thing that they were passionate about really led to destructive things for their lives they felt like i'm stuck i don't know i don't know what i'm about this these jobs i don't like like I think having that thing that you're driven towards in life, it just, it can elevate you out of just about any unhappiness or sadness. But uh, again, that's just for me. I would never say that to somebody else. Get over your life. Hey, keep going. Yes, I'm going to do it now. <laughs> well, yeah, it's been, as you said, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure. And I think let's everyone back home, stay safe and well, and let's all make the most of these terrible times and, look forward for the future yeah we'll see you on the other side of the you know we're going to see each other at some point in life that'll be great yeah everyone and ross we'll we'll see you all on the other side <laughs> <laughs> all right take care marvin
Thank you.